If you'll join with me in our scripture reading, we are reading today from John 3, 22 through 36. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 888. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We will wrap up chapter three this morning. Um, if you're new to Regeneration, welcome. And the way we've typically been going through uh, the Bible and our messages has been expository, is the type of preaching we, we're talking about. We, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse here, and so this is where we're at. Um, looking at these verses, uh, the word jealousy comes to mind, and so how many of you would actually admit that you're a jealous person? Is, is anybody... How many honest people do we have? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you know that you're jealous? Well, there, there's some sort of experience that brings that out of you, and, and then it's undeniable that you have this feeling when someone gets what you want or whatever the situation, it, it just kind of bubbles inside of you, and, and maybe it's not even jealousy for yourself, um, because oftentimes, I wouldn't say that I'm jealous for myself. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm jealous for my kids. And so you can even have a jealousy for someone else. And so when that other kid gets something that you want your kid to have, then, you know, that kind of bubbles in me. Like, they got that swing before my kid got that swing. I'm going to pull you off the swing and give that to my kid. But you know you're a jealous person when you've been tested by it, and then that feeling bubbles up. So 
I knew these two guys who liked the same girl, and actually this occurrence has happened more than many times. But this one happened inside the church, and I'm sharing this one with you because it was so many years ago, you, nobody would even remember this. But the girl chose the other guy, and so there was one guy that wasn't okay. And there was jealousy, and, and so that girl ended up marrying that guy. Everything's fine. They have a family. And then the other guy also found someone else. He got married to someone else, and they're both fine now. But back then, there was all this drama, and there was a fair amount of jealousy, and I had to meet with these three people and do quite a bit of counseling in regards to these uh, relationships. And so we look at John and Jesus this morning, and it's not like this with John. John doesn't have this jealousy towards Jesus. In fact, he says this in verses 28 through 30, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, a little context here. John the Baptist back at this time, he's, he's a mover and a shaker. He has this very influential ministry. He has a quite large following, large enough that it attracts religious leaders from Jerusalem to come out and to figure out, like, what's going on with that guy? And they have a lot of questions for him, and they have questions about, like, are, are you the Messiah? And so he made it clear that, you know, I'm not the Christ. And so he has this large group of followers of his own. He has disciples of his own. And then Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And so if you were looking at this picture, you'd be thinking, John's the man. Like, people are coming to him to get baptized. People are coming to him. Religious leaders from Jerusalem are, are coming to him. Look at all these people, and he's baptizing all these people. I mean, we got something going on here. This is great stuff. And you'd think John would be somebody who would kind of get puffed up in his head and be like, yeah, check this out. Like, I'm pretty great. Like, you know, look at all this. Like, look at all these people. These nicely dressed Pharisees and religious leaders coming out to talk to me. And I eat locusts. Like, I wear this. I'm a hippie. And so, no, he, he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who Jesus is. And in verse 29 of chapter 1, it reads this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what was John's message? You go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and it reads this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this is the background. This is the context. John attracted many people to himself before Jesus ever even came on the scene. That he had this huge following, this huge influence. But then soon after this, he baptizes Jesus. Everything changes. Everything's different. In fact, you don't even hear much about John the Baptist anymore until like his head gets chopped off. You don't hear about anything. And then it's all about pointing to Jesus and, and making Jesus known. And so can you at least even see the possibility of just a, a little bit of jealousy coming from John and coming from his disciples? Because he, he once had this booming ministry, and as soon as Jesus shows up, he's not trending on X or Twitter or whatever they call that anymore. Like, he's not trending anymore. He's, he's done. 
So easy for him to get jealous. And if he did, it would be so easy for his disciples to follow in this jealous frenzy right behind him. Like, yeah, well, who does he think he is? Look at all the good that we've done. Look at everything that, that we're about and all the influence. We get people coming out here repenting to God and, and what's going on. And you look back to verse 25, and it seems that John's disciples were jealous. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, because this is what they're known for. Like, yeah, people come out to us, and they ask us questions, and so we answer them, and we're, we're all that. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John's disciples are jealous. They were the it thing before. They were the it disciples. And, and, and now they, they sense, you know, we're, we're losing what we used to have. We're losing our influence. We're losing people that used to, to follow us. And they're wondering, Rabbi, John, why aren't you mad? He came to you and you baptized him. You didn't go to him. Why isn't John jealous? Why isn't he jealous about what's happening and these guys don't even mention Jesus by name. Right? They're saying, Rabbi John, Teacher John, he, that guy, that guy was with you before, and he came to you. And they don't mention that John professed Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. They, they forgot all that. And they're saying, Rabbi John, he was the guy with you, and look what he's doing now. Everyone's going to him. John's disciples want back what they once had. They had this glory day. And they were jealous that Jesus was taking away from what they had built and what they had already done. So what's the problem? The problem is, who is first? Who is first? Who is increasing and who is decreasing? Now, churches have this type of jealousy all the time. Churches are comparing themselves to each other all the time. And then the churches have to come up with all these different agendas as to how to grow an organization that we have to focus on this or focus on that. We've got to do this better. We've got to do that better. And we come up with all these programs or all these different outreaches. Unfortunately, most of the time, they lose sight of what John preached because they're looking at it from a corporate level or an organizational level or a programmatic level. They lose this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They don't approach it that way. They do something else. And so churches are more worried about being first than they are of being repentant. Is Jesus first? Is he unrivaled? Is he absolutely first? And this is what John the Baptist and this is what his disciples were confronted with. They had this very large, very influential ministry and now they're losing what they once had. But then you got to look at yourself and think, but what's important? Is it the size of your ministry? Is it the expansion of things? Is it the influence? Is it, what, what is it that is really important? And this is a really, really great question. This is a wonderful question. It's a very relevant question 
for churches today, including our own. Is Jesus first? And how about in your life? Is Jesus first? And how about the people you love most, the most important people in your life? Is Jesus first in their life? And this is what John was confronted with for himself, for his disciples. This is what John and the disciples were being confronted with, not being first anymore. And for John to teach his disciples, you know what? I see who's first. I must decrease. He must increase. And I need you guys to transfer your allegiance, your loyalty, your trust from me to Jesus. It can't be in me. And this is a really important question to ask ourselves and of our church. How do we respond with, is Jesus first? How do we respond when we see someone else with spiritual gifts that we don't have, when we see spiritual fruit from their efforts or from their church, when we see other churches growing numerically, financially, influentially, more than we are? Most importantly, how are you responding individually? Because this is what John himself was confronted with, and he was able to lead those who were following him. And how are those you love responding because Jesus' disciples are also confronted with this question, is Jesus first? Is Jesus first in your life? Is Jesus first in your husband or your wife's life? Is Jesus first in your son's or daughter's life, in your father or mother's life? Is he first? Is he first in the most important person in your life? Is he first there? Is Jesus before any of those most important people in your life? And then there's this other way to look at it as well. Do you want your spouse to put Jesus before they even put you first? Ugh. Do you want your kids to put Jesus before they put you Do you want your parents, this one's hard, because kids don't like this. Do you want your parents to put Jesus before yourself? And I think it might be easier for us to say, or at least I think, that we ourselves will put Jesus before anyone else. We can do that for ourselves. But I think it might be a little more difficult to admit that I want my spouse to put Jesus before me, because, you know, I want to be taken care of, and, you know, I, I, I want to be first. And to admit that we want our spouse to be more devoted to Jesus than they are to us it might be tougher for some people. It just depends. But I know for sure for kids this is really tough. They want to be first all the time. They want to be first all the time. And so this is something that we need to disciple them in and to teach them in. And as long as there is something or someone that is first before Jesus, there are these blessings that we're not going to be able to receive because there is an idol in the way. It's idolatry. And Jesus cannot be second. It's an impossibility to be a child of God and to have Jesus second. Now, some of you know my story with my eldest daughter. Um, I always thought I wanted Jesus first in my kid's life. I, I thought that, you know, I'm a pastor, I know the scriptures, I know these things, and I, and I thought in my heart, yeah, I want Jesus first in their life. And then I got tested. 
I got tested. And this is when you know that you're a jealous person or that you got some faults. And I found out how really sinful I really, really am. And God taught me this really, really valuable lesson because I, I found that I had all of these aspirations for my kids, a ton of aspirations for my kids. And all those aspirations took place of Jesus being first. I had to really honestly look at this stuff because I was tested. And if I wasn't tested, there was no way I could see it. I would just keep going the way that I was. And it's not that hard to tell what I had first in my life. Because all you had to do was look at my bank account. And all you have to do is where I invest my time. And, and it'll tell you. Because it shows you my kids go to tutoring. And how much time we go to the library. Or how much time we, we invest into reading. Or like all these different things. That I'm telling you and you're thinking like, isn't that good? Isn't that a wonderful thing? But you see, I, I was aspiring to provide for them experiences, education. The things I didn't have growing up, I wanted to provide for them a better way, something more than what I had. And in pursuit of this aspiration of desiring them to get the best education possible and go to a good school and get a good job so that you have more options in your life, I lost sight of what was first. And the test thrown before me was a very scary, intense, painful, long-suffering ordeal, nightmare that I had to deal with. And it, I was tested. You see, my daughter became suicidal. And all those aspirations I had flew out the window. I didn't care anymore. Because I had to lie down on my daughter's floor so that I can keep track of her because she, the first time she wanted to take her life, she said, I'm going to jump off something high. So I just slept on the floor. And she also told me and my wife, I just want to take a bunch of pills. I want to be done. So I had to grab all the stuff and we had to get safes and we put it all in the safe. See, that was a fearful anxious, worrisome time. And then I was confronted with who I really am. What I really put first. Because all that stuff didn't matter anymore. And I had to think about if I don't pursue those aspirations, what will my children lose? And that was a tough thing for me to come to grips with. Like, and all that I invested in in terms of their education and the time and the money and all this stuff, I, it's lost. I, I, I don't want to pursue that stuff anymore, and I just, I, I'm, I'm going to throw that stuff away. And I had to think about what they wouldn't have and what they wouldn't gain. And if, if I put Jesus first in their life, I, I'm going to lose some things. I'm going to have to sacrifice some things. And then emerging from the other side, we're not in the clear yet. She still has some struggle. She's in counseling. She's in therapy. She's, she's medicated. And we're, we're providing all the support possible for her. And going on for three years, we're, we're still not in the complete clear, but she's doing way better. But emerging from that other side, 
I have to confess to you and tell you that Jesus being first is so worth it. I don't wish this experience on anyone, but it taught me a valuable lesson about what is first. It changed my heart for my kids to put Jesus first. And my actions before weren't showing that. It wasn't proving that. And I couldn't see that until I was tested and confronted with it. And my prayers used to be for my kids to go to the best schools possible, for them to have opportunity, for us to qualify for a Pell Grant, to get a Cal Grant, because there's no way I can afford the schools that I'd want them to go to. So God, please provide a way or some big benefactor who's just going to write me a check and say, where do your kids want to go to school? Here it is. And those were like our prayers, like we, to, to have these opportunities for their future. But it was all this worldly success rather than a spiritual success. And I was jealous for them because I'm seeing this of all these other kids that have so many more resources and can provide so much more than I could ever provide. And I had to confess Christ wasn't first. He wasn't first for my life. So our prayers are different now. My prayers with my family, with my children, are they go to a place of higher education, if at all. But the main thing is that they glorify God wherever they go. God is first. That there's a mission field out there that they're called to and they're to be sent to. And wherever that is, great. It doesn't matter how prestigious that school is or not at all or reputable or anything. You go where... God is going to lead you, and we're, that's where we're going to go. Where you're going to meet godly people who are going to encourage your walk with Christ, and you're going to encourage theirs. Where you're going to find a church that you can serve at, and that will serve you. That Jesus Christ is first for you. That there are far more important things than your career, or anything else, or the spouse you're going to meet, or the friends you're going to make, or whatever. All those other things will fall in line if you put Christ first. Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Oftentimes we think of Jesus adding to our lives instead of he's first, and then the other things get added. We just want to pepper him in later, kind of flavor our life later. But Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is never second. He is first, and everything else is added on. And what we really hold on to doesn't really pop up until we're tested with Christ being first. I always mention that kids are the most sanctifying tool for me. It's not my marriage. It's not my relationship with my folks. It's not anything else. It's my kids because of idolatry. I idolize them. Most parents, I think we struggle with this stuff. And it's simple. You look at what you spend your money on and where you spend your time. It's very evident. And so God uses that with me a lot to sanctify me, to show me. And here we are being tested with John. And John could have answered a number of ways to his disciples, but his answer to them is so spot on. It's, it's evidence of God's grace 
in someone's life that John doesn't complain about this and actually his devotion shines through here. And it's verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so John gives honor where honor is due. He knows there is someone who is before him. There is someone who gave these gifts, this ability to even serve. And this is how jealousy in our heart is dealt with. To recognize that God is the giver of gifts, whether it is your gifts or someone else's gifts, it's all from the same giver. So rather than jealousy when we see gifts of another person that we don't have, it's an opportunity to praise the giver of the gifts because that's what's really impressive. Not the person that got the gift, but the person who gives the gifts. You see, there's this diversity of gifts given by God and it's the giver of gifts who we should be looking at and praising and glorifying. like It's not the person who got it. And John gives us an illustration of this, verse 29, with the bridegroom and his friend, or maybe best man, the way that we see it. And so the one getting married to the bride is the bridegroom. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, this best man, and stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know these weddings where there's a celebrity that's part of the wedding party, and then all these media and paparazzi, whatever, they're taking pictures of the wedding party. You're like, so-and-so's part of this person's wedding. Well, Taylor Swift is part of this person's wedding party, and they don't look at the bride or the groom at all. They're just focused totally on some celebrity that's in the wedding party. All the attention is there. And the thing is, that celebrity that's in the wedding party, that's not why they're there. They're there for their friend or their cousin or their relative or whatever. They're part of this wedding party. And their attention is on the bridegroom and the bride. And this is how it is with John the Baptist and Jesus. He knew whose wedding it was. That I'm just like a friend. I'm just a best man. I'm, I'm seeing who is really getting married here. I'm, I'm not the show. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. John knew the Old Testament and the picture of God coming down to take a bride for himself. And this is what Jesus was doing coming down from heaven to take his bride, the church. And he's taking this bride for himself. And for this bride, he is going to die for her. He is going to sacrifice himself for her. And John knew this picture in the Old Testament. And he said this in John chapter 1, starting in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's happening here? Jesus came to this vast congregation of sinners. You imagine all the people getting baptized. You imagine all this public display of people that that once followed John and his disciples. This huge crowd of people, this audience. And the Father was saying to Jesus from heaven, Will you, Jesus, take these sinners to be your bride? Will you take all these sinners to be your bride? 
And John, who is the friend of the bridegroom, is standing right there. He's the best man, and he's witnessing this, and he's seeing this baptism. And he heard Jesus say to God, the presiding minister, I do. And the spirit falls down, and he's witnessed all these things as a friend of the bridegroom. And John knew, I'm going to rejoice because my sins can be forgiven. And all this church, this entire audience, their sins can be forgiven. And so you see why John was so devoted to Jesus. He was a friend of the bridegroom who was right there with Jesus at the baptism and witnessed all of this happening. And he greatly rejoiced at what happened, just like the wedding party does after they pronounce husband and wife. And they walk in and everyone's cheering and happy. And this is John. Yes, I'm forgiven. And everyone else can be forgiven. So you see, it's not difficult for him to say in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. And this is key. This battle with jealousy, this battle with idolatry, this is so important to battle these natural jealousy and idolatry tendencies within our heart that that sinful jealousy in there needs to be replaced with a jealous love and a jealous honor for the Lord where we say he must increase, I must decrease. And everything that we do, and everything that we think, he must increase, I must decrease. A complete devotion to Jesus Christ. And then John the Gospel writer closes this chapter with the following verses from verse 31 and on, on which speak of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ not only comes before us, as John spoke about, because John was older than him in chronology, but that he is everlasting and, and physically, but spiritually, he, he's eternal. It, it is not that he's just before us according to time, but in, in terms of origin, that we are created, but he is creator. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And then John writes of this relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And even though Jesus is the greatest, he's also loved by God. But you look at the people, it's not so with the people. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Shouldn't be a surprise to us that evangelism is so difficult. I mean, they turned down Jesus himself. And Jesus tells us of the grace of God, the love of God that he sent from God from heaven above. He's bearing witness to what he has seen and heard in the kingdom of God, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus is eyewitness of heaven. He's telling everyone what it's like, what the kingdom of God is like, yet no one, not everyone, receives this eyewitness testimony. 
And this is what happens to those who have faith in Jesus and those who don't. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The supremacy of Jesus in our lives is so vital. It's not a secondary thing. It is a primary thing. Why? Because it is the only sure way that we have to be saved from the wrath of God. Because it is only in Jesus Christ that there is salvation from the wrath of God. There is no other way. There is no other person or thing that can deliver us from the wrath of God. Only God himself in Jesus This is the only place in the entire Gospel of John where John uses this word wrath. You won't find it anywhere else in the Gospel of John. It's just here. Everything after this point is pointing to Jesus as the way to be saved from this wrath of God. That the only way to be delivered from God's wrath is to trust in the one that God sent, the only one, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we face the wrath of God. Parting questions for you. Is Jesus supreme in your life? Is Jesus Christ first in your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so gracious. You discipline your children because you love us. You put these tests in front of us to really have us prove. And when we are given these tests, God, it's time to rejoice. It's time to praise you because we in fact know that you love us and you want to change our hearts and you want to transform us more into your image. And so, Lord, rather than saying, why me, when these difficulties and challenges come, may we look to you. May we indeed place you first in our life, in our loved ones' lives. May we live this out. God, thank you for how patient you are with us. That even after decades of following you, there's still so much more that you want to show people to get deeper in relationship with you and and to truly glean all that you have for us. And and it's so interesting to find that when we think we know you more, the, the further we realize we are from you. God, thank you for this church. I pray that you work on our collective hearts in terms of this jealousy issue. May we just focus on how you want us to live, how you want us to love our community. May we not be peering over and and comparing and, and trying to do things other people are doing. May we just concentrate on placing you first and all these things will be added to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need communion elements, just raise your hand. We can get that over to you. And anyone in need or want of prayer, I'll just be in the front pew on the left side here if anyone wants to pray. And Kristen, who is on our council, is also on the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you.
especially in regards to these jealousy issues where we can have idols that are stuck in front of us. Let's take out that first element for communion, this wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John came to preach repentance, so if you have anything you're harboring inside your heart, it's time to clear that out before you take this. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. This is our way that he has made to God in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thank you for these simple elements that mean so much. A weekly reminder for us to show us where our allegiance lies, where our loyalties lie. And we pray, God, that we're not blinded by things that distract us or or hold us back from a relationship with you. We ask that those scales would be removed from our eyes, that we would be able to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.